back and welcome new listeners to Creator Talks. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. Today, my guest is Laszlo Tomofsky. He has put together a collection of his one-page webcomics, horror stories, within a framing story, much in the line of H.P. Lovecraft and The Twilight Zone, called The Observatory, being published through Caliber Press. And it also contains a prose story, a horror story, much along the lines of Call of Cthulhu, you do not want to miss. This book is packed with heart-wrenching and horrifying stories. They're just one page by a group of talented and amazing artists. In addition to talking about the book, I ask Laszlo all my fun questions. I ask all my guests. But not only that, he's also a fellow Bowie fan and Nine Inch Nails fan. So I couldn't help but talk about that with Laszlo. So we geek out about that for a bit, but I do have more material about that, about Bowie and his work, after the podcast, after the closing sequence. So please check that out. Whether you're a fan or not, you'll certainly learn something. But as for Laszlo's comic, it's amazing. I was blown away, surpassed my expectations, and really does have an emotional gut punch to it. And it was fun to discover so many new artistic talents I wasn't aware of. Branko Jovanovic, who makes contribution, I was. He works on Solar Flare and Long Live Pro Wrestling through Scout Comics. But there's more to discover. So let's get started. My conversation with Laszlo Tomofsky, creator and writer of The Observatory. Here now on Creator Talks. Laszlo, welcome to Creator Talks. Thank you for having me. Now you're in Chicago currently. Yes, and we just moved here. Spent the last 17 years in Florida. Yeah, this is our next big chapter. <laughs> so we'll see how it goes. We haven't had our first winter yet. Ah, yeah, I was going to ask you that. Now, that's a big change going from Florida to Chicago. Uh, now, why Chicago? My wife uh, got a job here. She's a nurse practitioner, and she really wanted to work in LGBTQ health. So Chicago is a wonderful city for that. So it's basically her dream job. So we just took the leap and moved that's an excellent job, too. Those are in demand. There's a lot of good you can still do. It's one of those fields that needs a lot of work, a lot of improvements. Now, you're originally from Hungary. When did you move to the States? Early 2001. And your reason for joining us? Not for the show, but for the... <laughs> in the country? <laughs> in the country, yeah. uh, <laughs> Yes. It's not really an inspiring story. I was 19 years old, and it just sounded like a lot of fun. How's it feel now? <laughs> I, I still love it. I'm very happy. Uh, I did move here before 9-11, so mm-hmm. it was a little bit more late 90s optimistic when I got here. But no, I love it. Of course, there's a caveat. You could say the politics and all that stuff. But uh, as a country, I'm still very happy to be here. Well, that's good. I'm curious, what do you miss about Hungary? Is there any places that you would hang out, go to that you're like, oh, I wish I could go back and do that again sometime? I do go back every couple of years. So I, I get a chance to get those out of my system. I miss my family and my friends the most. My mom still lives in Hungary, so it would be nice if I could see her more often. Now, you write horror and sci-fi. Is there anything about your upbringing or even starting out in Hungary that influenced the way you write your comics and your scripts? Probably not comics. I had to rediscover comics after I came to the States. At the time, there was no adult or grown-up 
comic books being published in Hungary. I did hear about Sandman. I did hear about a couple of other more mature comics. But after I came to the States, I went to a comic book store for the first time in my life and picked two completely random issues of Sandman. And that's how my current love affair with comics started. So there wasn't a lot before that. Just maybe when I was a child, we had Spider-Man, but I'm not a superhero guy, so it didn't really stick. Gotcha. And then what other horror comics from the 90s did you pick up besides Sam? And what else did you read that influenced your horror writing? I think everything that had the Vertigo logo on it, I just devoured. Wow, that's that should be an easier question. But I don't know. <laughs> like that, uh, It's not quite horror, but I love Warren Ellis. Loved Planetary was absolutely mind-blowing. Cannot overstate Sandman. It, it just... The good thing about discovering it late is that you have years to explore it. So I loved all of it. The spin-offs, I'm all in. Now, people may not know this, but you also are a horror sci-fi scriptwriter, movie writer, and you've written several, and you've had, for example, Exiles. That was Best Anthology Screenplay Silver Screen Film Festival. You had The Trip was best writing at the Jacksonville Short Film Showcase, Nice People at Dragon Con, and Invisible Hand for Best Graphic Novel at the Silver Screen Fest. So you've done quite a few screenplays. I know they're all your baby, but is one of those your proudest achievement? Probably Exiles, but I'm really conscious of it. Like I'm, I'm taking my comic book writing as a career, and I'm doing the movie stuff as a hobby. It's not that different, but I just want to take that pressure off of it. We actually made a couple of those short films. A couple of them are short scripts. And we made them for no money, just on the weekends with friends. It's just a creative hobby. I love all of them. You're right. <laughs> They're all babies, so it's good. Now, when did you decide to become a writer? And what did you do to prepare yourself to work as a writer professionally? I can't quite remember a time when I wasn't trying to write. I mean, it's still sort of hard to imagine it as a profession that pays the mortgage. But as a child growing up in Hungary, I feel like it was even harder to imagine. Uh, most of the books I read were written by American authors. I think the first time I started writing, my friends and I were trying to do those Choose Your Own Adventure books. So it was I was preteen, but those were the first ones we were trying to Right. And of course, they were terrible, but I think they're supposed to be you know, at that age. <laughs> mm -hmm. As far as I know, your first comic work was Observatory Comics. Is that correct? Yes. Observatory as a web comic was my first published work. And then between the web comic starting and now the collected trade paperback being published, there was another miniseries in between. So Okay. Now, this was described, the webcomic, as flash fiction. Can you tell us what flash fiction is? Yes. Yeah, so in prose, it usually refers to a short story that is, I think, either a thousand or 300 words long, so less than a page. And it's supposed to be just a quick, like a flash of a story. And so I try to do a version of that, but in comics. So for me, it meant that I limited my stories to be no longer than one page. 
And from what I've read, <laughs> which has been everything in your book, that is not a detriment in any way, shape, or form. In fact, it's quite a skill to be able to write a one-page story that has emotional impact. Get all the beasts in there in just one page and a few panels, and it's amazing. It really reads well, and there are so many good stories in the book, and I'm going to get to that. But it's a good format to use that digital flash fiction because it is so tough to get people's attention to read more than a few pages anymore. You know, There's so much out there. It seems like a real challenge just to get people to focus for a while and read a whole book. And it was so easy to ask people to get into it like they didn't have to catch up there was no entry point to go back to so if anybody just stumbled upon one of these pages online they could just go to the website and just read up for fun but it was not required to know anything else Oh, no previous knowledge or anything. You don't have to go out and buy other books to get all caught up. So I know some books, many books, especially the mainstream superhero comics, there's so much continuity, there's so much baggage that unless you have a lot of knowledge, you really don't get the full enjoyment out of it. And sometimes it's tough to pick up an issue and figure out what's going on. If it's a really good writer, they'll find a way to catch you up no matter what book you pick up. But things are written more nowadays for trade, so a lot of times there's no clever additional exposition so that it's not obvious to tell you where we left off. Sometimes there's the recap page, which I like a lot, that says the story thus far, and some do a really good job. Now, your book doesn't require any of that. You've collected all of these flash fiction webcomics into The Observatory, which is going to be published by Caliber Press. Caliper presents volume four, The Observatory. That's going to come out November 28th, I believe. That is correct. It's, uh, I'm not sure how, like, I don't want to get into two specifics of the distribution system in the United States, but it is being solicited right now. So in the month of September for comic book stores. And you are right, it is to hit the shelves in November. And it's collecting all of your Flash comics from 2014 to 2017. But what you've done, and in their each individual stories, they stand alone, but they've all been put together within a framing story that you have with really amazing art by Jeremy Ray. And I just want to add, there are a lot of artists in your book that I haven't heard of, that this is a great way to find out about their work and how good it is. And sample so many great artists. I mean, it's, I love it when I get a book and I, I've never heard of this person, but I love their work. This, I, where have they been? You know, So it's great you have so many talents. And not only is it easy for people to pick up and read, but I'm sure for a lot of the creators that you've worked with, it's easier for them to say, sure, I can knock out a page for you versus a big commitment of, oh, I have to do a miniseries now. Tell me about the people that you worked with to put this book together before we get into what the book's about, the framing story. Besides using the web to find the right artists, did you do some networking at all? Yes and no. It's uh, Most of it, you're absolutely right. I connect with most of the artists on forums dedicated to specifically to making comics. But not everyone, like uh, Gergely Leposha, one of the artists, he, I actually grew up with him. He's one of my best friends from middle school, I think. And he's, he's, I'm just lucky I have a lot of great artist friends. So yes, I had the luxury of just asking my friend to 
contribute. I mean, it's shocking how many talented artists are just online waiting for a, a way to be part of comics. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for folks who listen to the show, there is someone in the book that I have read their work before. It's Branko Jovanovic, and he's worked on Solar Flare and Long Live Pro Wrestling, which is out now. And I had his writer, James Hayek, on the show, and I've seen Branko's work before, and he has a short story in there, uh, which was a really <laughs> good story. And let's talk about the framing story, about this observatory that is actually part of the book now, this framing story. There is an observatory, and there is an Uncle Wallace who worked in that observatory, and he had, a, I guess you could say, uh, a vision, almost like a descent into madness, that has a chance to work all these short stories in. Tell me about how you created that framing device for the book. Yes, well, the reason why I created it, I really wanted the book to stand on its own. I don't think the book actually mentions that it used to be a webcomic, for better or worse. I wanted it to be a proper book reading experience. And I did learn during the three years of doing the comic online that it becomes quite a heavy reading experience. Just these short stories just keep one after the other. Each page is a brand new setup. I'm hoping that it's a really interesting experience, but I didn't want people to really burn out quite as quickly on it. I wanted to have some framing device to hang it on. And the story itself was very much inspired by reading H.P. Lovecraft when I was a preteen, teenager. I was lucky because it was in the mid-90s in Hungary and there was no context to it. I did know about the role-playing game, Call of Cthulhu. I've never seen a copy of it. So there was no pop culture representation of Cthulhu. So reading the short stories were really just on their own merit. And they were really old-fashioned and simple and wonderful. I really loved them. But I wanted to write a framing story that has that, in a good way, old-fashioned feel to it. So that's why I did the unexpected inheritance and the crazy uncle with the somewhat suspicious last wish. All of those things sort of came out from being inspired by those short stories. Yeah, and there is that sense of tension and dread where... His nephew has to stay in the observatory because he owes him for some reason. And we find out as we stick with the book and read through it why he owes him. And there is this sense of mystery, of horror, of creepiness that's there in the background running while you're going through these short stories that are, well, basically notes and observations and things, visions that he had. And I will just mention some of the short stories that really hit me. I'm not going to say what they are because I don't want to spoil anything. It's a one-page story throughout the book that you've taken and worked in there. The ones about twins, the ones about the mascots, the ones about the meatballs. I think the biggest gut punch for me was the one about the note. That one was <laughs> it's just, just like, it drives you to tears when you read that story. And it's one page, but man, what a hit. I'm, I'm really, really glad you liked them. I did try to make these real short stories so i don't i didn't want them to be throwaway ideas i really wanted them to have some emotional resonance but it's honestly probably because i wrote about things that interested me so i'm 
so happy that it came across. I'm happy you like them. You know, and if people like things like The Twilight Zone and Creepy, this is for them. This And, and of course, Call of Cthulhu, it's all worked in there. H.P. Lovecraft, if you like that kind of stuff. Like you mentioned that it doesn't say in the book that these are based on webcomics, and I didn't know that till after I read it, but I never got that impression that it was taken from webcomics and all put together. I mean, to me, it seemed like it all hung together as one long narrative with all these little short stories in it. It didn't seem like it was something that was brought together from older work, so it worked very well in that regard. These are stories that will evoke an emotion from you, either horror or sadness, but they do have an emotional resonance. It's not just like, oh, yeah, okay, that's all right. That's kind of cool. No, you're going to stop and go, whoa, wait, whoa, man. <laughs> you want to, like, tell the person next to you, hey, check this out. Take one minute and read this page, and they're going to want to read the rest. So uh, very well done. Horror and sci-fi. A lot of very talented artists in there. And there's more. Besides that story, the framing story, you have an introduction by Bram Stoker nominee Mary San Giovanni. You have an art gallery in there. And there's a prose story. Now, a lot of people, when you get comics, they go, well, I read the comic, but, you know, there was a prose story. And I didn't read that. I just want to read the comic. Or, yeah, I, I got this trade, and it's a prose story. But, no, no, I'm telling you folks, read the prose story. <laughs> it's, it's not long, but it's well worth your time because it is very Cthulhu-esque. That's a word I can use. And there's also art within that section. Earl Gary, it's like if you've ever read the old pulp magazines or old pulp books then there's illustrations in those there's illustrations that goes along with the pro story and they're done in that style and there's not a ton so it's not a comic book that portion of the book but it really has that old-fashioned feel to it of the old pulp magazines and it's a out-and-out out horror stories, so, but it's a mystery that's unraveling throughout, so you don't know where it's going until you get to the very end, and then, well, like I said, it's a horror story, so uh, please tell me about developing that to go into the book, because it is a, that alone is a wonderful reason to get the book. Well, thank you that the short story is sort of a love letter to St. Augustine, Florida. That's where I lived for 17 years until recently, and you might be surprised to learn, but in the 1890s, there was a giant sea creature that washed ashore that was hailed as the Florida monster. And I just wanted to sort of expand on it. And the short story has a lot of like city descriptions. And if you're familiar with the city, they all sort of make sense. And I don't know, I just wanted to play with that idea of making a fictional version of our hometown. So wait, this is actually based on a true story, a true report from the late 1800s? Absolutely. You can look up a photograph of the local, I think the local doctor or biology teacher or something, someone who was called out to examine the carcass. There are black and white photographs and one of them looks very similar to one illustration in the book where he's standing next to a mound of just bizarre flesh for scale. Like that's almost verbatim the same image on purpose, of course. So yes, there's a lot of truth in that story. Oh, all the better. That's great. See, folks, you don't get this kind of information unless you listen to the show. Listen to all this background you're getting. It's pretty cool stuff. 
That's great. That's great. Do you plan on writing more prose stories? I know you're focusing on comics, but you know, are you planning on doing more prose? Yes, I am uh, writing more prose short stories. It's a nice outlet between comics projects. I'm sure you know comics are quite hard to get off the ground and it takes a long time to make a book. So while I'm working on the next book, I am taking a chance, like a, a little bit of a breather and working on it. And also some of it is English is my second language. And like I have to sort of learn how to write prose in English. So I'm experimenting with that. I have a couple other short stories coming out in different anthologies, but I'm not quite sure if I can talk about them yet, but there's more coming. So okay. I'm glad, I'm so happy you liked it because I guess it's a good sign. <laughs> now, do you have more comic work also planned? Anything in the works? Anything that you want to do? Yes, I have a lot of... Well, I have a couple of projects I'm making with other artists I've worked with in the past. I'm really comfortable with the four or five issue miniseries format. For right now, that's where I have to stay. That makes sense to me as far as a story structure. And maybe in a couple of years, I might try to go for one of these ongoing books. But as of now, I'm very happy working in these couple of issues. That's a very wise choice. All the writers I've talked to, all the professionals, they say the same thing as like, don't try to write this big opus, this long, because you don't know how long it's going to last because the market is tough. Make it manageable. Four or five issues, many people will invest in it. They'll follow it. They'll pick it up. Then you can have a trade afterwards if they missed it or they want to have it collected. But that is the best way to approach it keep it you know manageable <laughs> slowly build that portfolio and that way too and i've heard this from writers as well is that it gives them a chance to do other things they're not locked into one story one character for a long period of time they can flex their skills try different things it's a very wise approach to take and i have to say as a writer it's not the most natural idea to have a story that will not end for a long, long time. At least for me, like like a trade paperback is basically a graphic novel if it's written to be its own. So structurally, that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I'm not quite sure it, it's a natural state for comic books to keep going. It's more of a market business decision in my mind. It is. It feels a little forced at times when things go on and on. I mean, there are a lot of ongoing stories I really like. But there is a real challenge trying to make it fresh, and there was a lot heavier turnover in readership back in the 50s and 60s, or you go back to the 40s even. Uh, you know, they were always going to have a fresh audience every couple, two, three years, so they could repeat things. But now you have longtime fans who have a very devout loyalty to these well-known characters, and there's a challenge to keep it fresh and also balance that, well, you've changed it too much. I hate this. So people, you know, it's kind of a catch-22. They hate change. They want it to be what they want it to be. Yet there's a complaint, oh, it's what you're doing the same thing over and over again. So I, I do appreciate and do like stories that have a natural endpoint. Even the ones that run like 30, 40, 50 issues, usually the writer has some endpoint in mind. They might break into the smaller chunks. But they are, they have a definite ending. There are writers who come in there and they're like, you know what? I can tell a new story with this character that's been around for 50 years. And kudos to them. I don't know how they do it, but they're good at what they do. <laughs> but it's tough. I know. And I know it's tough. 
I do have to say I don't have a lot of interest in doing superhero stuff. So that also limits the pressure to keep things rolling. So in a dream world, I would love to work on licensed books, but strictly in the horror genre. I would like to take a crack at like one of these 80s, 90s horror movie franchises. I like horror books because they seem to have a natural ending. There is an end point where the, either the threat is removed or the horror carries out what it wants to do, and that's the end. But there is a natural ending. Superheroes are so hard to break into anyway. I mean, there's people like what's been around, and when people try to create a new superhero, it's really hard because what are you going to do differently that hasn't already been done? You can come up with something new, and people should, and I want to see it, but I know that that is really a tough sell with so many people creating superhero comics you got to really find a way to break out and again the dream is to have those things just go on and on and on and then get into movies and books and other things but horror i like that because there seems to be a natural limitation to how far it's going to go how long it's going to go on one of the things i enjoyed about horror movies back in the 40s even though they did have an end the odd thing was a lot of them did kind of carry on you know you remember like there was frankenstein and then frankenstein meets the wolfman and then the house of dracula so in a way they did perpetuate on, but each one seemed like it had its own endpoint. And they just decided, let's keep going. Let's do another one. Oh, there's always another one for sure. But I don't know. I think it's just different. It's more fun to me. But I think the rule of thumb is you should only try to work you like to read. And I just, that's what I, as a reader, that's what I'm gravitating towards is the horror stuff. Do what you like because you know it best and you're most comfortable with it. So, you can tell the best story. It's always great to try to stretch and go beyond your comfort zone, but I know that a lot of writers I've talked to, they do what they do because they know it. They understand it. If it's a story about World War II, they know a lot about the weapons used and the battles fought, and they feel very comfortable writing a new fiction story about it, and that's why they write it. Uh, same thing with horror. They like horror. That's why they write it. They understand it. So, yeah, it makes perfect sense. But I babbled on an awful lot. And this is about you. So I have some fun questions for you. What do you like to do, Laszlo, for rest and relaxation when you're not writing? Yes. So my wife and I, we love to go to the movies. I think we try to catch a movie once a week. It's just a nice date experience. We love doing trivia. It's a great way to get your adult friends <laughs> out. You know, like it's, it's kind of the older you get, the harder it is to get friends moving out so and uh for stress relief i do a lot of jogging i find that it's really important especially if you're home all day riding and stuff yeah those of us with sedentary jobs you need to build it in and i don't know about you but i find once the blood is flowing and you get more oxygen to the brain you function better and you come up with new ideas oh so many riding problems do you solve when you're running or walking it's definitely a good way to think so i'm consciously cutting out music while i jog so i can actually just be with my thoughts almost like a walking meditation or jogging meditation you just whatever pops in and you can examine that and go hmm i find the same thing when i'm not running and i'm trying to i can't solve a problem how do i say this or how do i write this 
bam. <laughs> it's usually then that something hits me like, yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. Because I can sit there and mull it over my head while I'm running. Exactly. Thinking back, is there a birthday that stands out in your memory? One that meant a lot to you that was special? What was that birthday? I have a good one for this question. So it's actually my last birthday, which was back in February. My wife and I were packing through Southeast Asia at the time. Which I guess I could have mentioned that for the previous question that we also do a lot of traveling for fun. But my wife made sure that for my birthday, we would be at a nice destination at a nicer hotel than the usual like cheap Airbnb you're trying to get. So we were in Cambodia. We stayed in Siem Reap for my birthday. So during the day, we were exploring Angkor Wat and all these gorgeous temple ruined cities and that night we were just lounging at the pool and southeast asia has the cheapest beer in the world so you could it was just like 25 cent locally brewed beer and it was just really really memorable so i don't know if i could bring up another birthday after that like to be that special yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> the cheapest beer in the world, but a trip, yeah. What memories that makes, definitely. Now, thinking back to when you were younger, what I consider to be the golden age of youth for all of us, when we were a teenager around high school or a little before that, whatever it was on TV, music, it seems special to us. It doesn't matter when you were born. It's just that's the period that those things influenced you highly. So looking around your bedroom, as a preteen, what pictures or posters did you have on the wall? I was obsessed with dinosaurs. So I had dinosaur posters on my walls. I had shelves, just nothing but dinosaur toys. I was really overdoing it for sure. It was it definitely got to the embarrassing point, but it was, I don't know. I just fell in love with dinosaurs when I was five. And I think I was 12 when I finally was like, okay, it's time to take down the giant T-Rex. What popular music were you listening to at the time? What did you like to listen to? Well, in high school, I, I got really into grunge. So it was the mid-90s. I was into grunge, and then I got really into Nine Inch Nails and ah. David Bowie. Oh, good for you. <laughs> and to this day, I'm a huge fan of both. I'm actually quite a Nine Inch Nails fanatic. So every time they tour, I see them on multiple shows and I collect memorabilia. And so it really stuck. Like what you said about those years being really informative, like it definitely still resonates deeply with me. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm going to bore the audience once more with this. Since they're two of your favorites, Nine Inch Nails and Bowie, I did see them both together in concert in 1995. I will never forgive you. <laughs> I am <laughs> so jealous. I I am lucky I, I did get to see David Bowie in 97. Okay. He was touring with Earthling. Yes. And I did see Nine Inch Nails, I think, 15 times now. And Oh, wow. You are a big fan. <laughs> three more shows coming up in October. And Chicago is a great city to be in if you're a Nine Inch Nails fan. Those, of course, I listen to those legendary shows they did together and uh yes i am really really jealous i did you like it at the time like did you were you familiar with the bowie stuff as well or oh oh yeah i mean i bought the uh, outside album so i knew you know, what was coming up the first time i had seen him was the glass spider tour and i saw him during the sound and vision tour 
And then I saw him with Tin Machine when the second album of Tin Machine came out. And then I saw him do the one with the Nine Inch Nails. And the crossover between the two when they both played together was amazing. And in fact, there's a, a CD out now of not the concert I was at, but that concert tour that I got in the past year and listened to and kind of brought all those memories back. And it's pretty good. You know, it's from a radio broadcast, like a simulcast. Um, and then I saw him the last time was 2004 when he did his reality tour. But yeah, I was familiar. I enjoyed the show. You know, he's quite the artist, quite the showman. Uh, just a wonderful show. I know it wasn't big with the fans because it was not. He wasn't playing his standards at that point. He was trying to put all that behind him and start fresh again. But even then, he played some of his old stuff. It wasn't just the most popular songs. They were some of the deeper cuts, which was great. One of my and I do apologize for your listeners, but like one of my favorite <laughs> things to do on YouTube: look up outside era or hours era Bowie concerts and just put them on for the background and you can just he was so experimental like I just recently discovered like a completely jungle version of Andy Warhol oh I'm like oh I have never heard this like how did I not hear about this before and it was just a song they just played in the middle of a set and so it's he is definitely Amazing. I'm really jealous you got to see him like five times. It's amazing. <laughs> I was a big fan. I still am and uh, miss him terribly. And I have to tell you, I appreciate that concert more now that I'm older for what it is, for all the creativity and all the chances he took because it wasn't a usual Bowie tour. I mean, it was very different. So it might have turned some people off. They wanted to hear all the, you know, the usual songs. But folks want to go back and listen to that, you know, to look on YouTube or find some of those CDs or the live broadcast. It holds up very well. And that's one of the things I liked about his tours is that every time he went out on tour, even during the same tour at the beginning of it versus the end, there's a change. He changes things up and he can play the same song on all these tours a little differently or a different interpretation of it. And that to me was always so exciting because it was always fresh. It's always a little something different he would do. That was part of his genius that not only was he a great writer, but as a performer, he could change things up and make something fresh again. I could not agree more. Yeah, <laughs> I know you have to steer the ship back, but... I know, it's okay. Any, anytime anybody brings up Bowie, I'm like, oh, oh, hold on, hold on. <laughs> We're going to nerd out here about David Bowie for a bit. <laughs> back to you hypothetical you're on a desert island deserted island you're going to get off the island you're going to be fine eventually you'll be free but in the meantime you only can have one book with you for pleasure to read what would that one book be that you want to have with you i think it would be the stand by stephen king and only because i never got around reading it and i always wanted to and my understanding is that it's really long so I feel like I would get some mileage out of it. I love Stephen King, but it's just like I just for some reason never read it. And I love the Mick Garris directed TV series from the early 90s. So, yeah, I think that would be a great book to have. That's a good approach to take. You know, like some folks want to read something they can just they get kind of like their comfort food. They'll read it again and again. And other folks are like, look, I cannot get around to this book. So if I'm stuck someplace. I'm taking the book and I'm going to finally get to it. And that's probably what I would do is like get to something I've always meant to get to. Hopefully I like it. <laughs> Try to think, well, like what is the longest book I never sat down to read? You don't want to end up the hundred page 
novella by accident, you know, like, okay, how long are you on the island, you know? <laughs> yeah, you don't know. So, yeah, you want something that's going to occupy your time. Now, another hypothetical for toy company said, hey, we're going to make an action figure of you. What would be your accessory? You have a say in this. So what would go with you that would speak to you? Something that represents you. Yeah, that's a tough one. I might ask them to make a, an action figure of one of my dogs to be packaged with me. Uh, she's 15. She's my first dog ever. Her name is Nuala and she's amazing. She's the best. Yeah, I think we would have fun. Package together. What kind of dog is it? She's a boxer English bulldog mix. Okay. Really cute. And I have two dogs, two cats, but they're not human children, so you, you're allowed to have favorites, I guess. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> they're not going to be traumatized by it. So she's the favorite. She just she's never done anything wrong in her life. She's so good. And the dogs and cats get along great? One of my other dog is a little bit challenging. He's a not so friendly with other dogs or small children. Yeah, we had a bit of crossover when we had a cat who was very old, kind of on her way out, and then we had a puppy. And the puppy just wanted to play with the cat, and the cat's like, I don't want to play. I'm not up for this. Go away. <laughs> but it's funny because the dog was so young, he didn't care if it was a cat. Now, for whatever reason, the dog's older. Doesn't like cats. Maybe it has this memory of our cat not wanting to play with it. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but if you get them together young, sometimes, you know, they just get along. Funny thing, the cats are fine with the dogs. Oh, okay. It's just the two dogs are not matching really well. Yeah, you know, a lot of times, too, it's breed. They have certain temperaments, certain personalities. Some are super laid back and others. They're kind of a loner. This is mine. This is my space. Go away. Yes, there's a lot of jealousy, probably. So. Yep, yep. Maybe yeah. he knows that she's the favorite. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's our fault. Oh, wow. Now, when the dogs and cats are happy and you're kicking back and relaxing, what is your beverage of choice? I really, really enjoy light beers. I like beers that are so light it should almost be like water. It sounds terrible, but like every time I have friends who try to drag me out to a brewery, I know I lost it. They never have... Beers that are just quite crappy enough, I guess. I don't know. They're the hardier beers. They're the IPAs. They're the stouts. Uh, I think it's because I lived in Florida and it's always summer heat. And it's just lovely to have like this refreshing light beer. No, I get that because I tend to gravitate towards IPAs and things, which my wife can't stand. She just hates it. But the problem is, as much as I like it, it's not a light beer. And besides, of course, the caloric intake, which I don't need, I'm done. That's an end-of-the-day thing because, well, first of all, I can't, I'm not going to drink during work. That's crazy. But I'm just saying that my work is done. You know, if I wanted to read or write something for pleasure on my own, if I drink something heavy, I'm not going to be my best. It's okay for brainstorming because things pop into my head and I go, that's a good idea. But as far as being productive, no. <laughs> That's relaxed time. The lighter beers, I've experimented with some of those, and they're pretty good. And I agree with you. In the summertime, you know, some of the ones that have, uh, I know people, some people don't like this, but they have some lime in them. They have some orange in them. I actually prefer that in the summertime. They are quite refreshing. I probably talked about this on another podcast by the time this comes out, but I actually found one when I was on vacation. I'd never seen before. It was a beer brewed for Megadeth. It's a Megadeth branded beer. And I thought, oh, my God, this is going to be a real butt kicker, right? And that was light. It's, a, it's like a uh, – was it a Saison? 
and it was like four and a half percent. It wasn't really heavy. And in fact, it was light enough. My wife drank it, which is, you know, usually it's like, this is too bitter. This is too heavy. But it was like a Canadian brewed beer. It was fine. It was if you wanted something light for the summer, it was good. I think it's basically geared towards spring, summer. But yeah, I hear what you're saying. That's how you like to relax. It's a nice light. You don't have to call it watery. You just want something a little lighter. That's all. It's okay. It's not bad. <laughs> I always say, uh, especially if you travel, you should just see what the locals are drinking. So in all those hot climates, if you go to uh, the Caribbean or Mexico or Cuba, you couldn't sell IPAs. I think they're, you know, like every there. Each country has their own version of like a really daytime drinking beer i guess yeah there are some really good ones too that even if you like something like an ipa they have some like there's one that's called all day ipa it's a lighter uh less alcoholic it's got the bite but it's not so heavy so you know you go out and cut the lawn and you have one of those you're not splat on the ground you know it's meant for kind of a, to be more of a refreshing so yeah i hear you you're not gonna see you're not gonna see those heavy ones in warm climates there's no way yeah. final question what is the one question that you've not been asked yet? And this is going to be something you want people to know about you. It just hasn't come up in conversation yet. And it's something that is not related to your work, but something people should know. What would that one question be? And please answer it. Wow. I don't know if I have a question like that. First of all, thank you for the opportunity to talk about David Bowie. So I guess that like that, <laughs> I, I love fandom, so no, unless like I'm in a very specific, like I need to find a Nine Inch Nails Collectors podcast just to go and just kill an hour on <laughs> different uh, versions of cassette tapes from 1992. But no, I think uh, for like normal consumption of a conversation, I I never really had a, a missing question I was eager to answer. Well, I think we covered it. You know, do you have a passion topic, something that you're very passionate about outside of comics and writing, something that means a lot to you? A couple of things. I mean, I'm I'm a huge LGBTQ ally, and I feel like there's a lot of conversation to be had to normalize the topic and make people comfortable with it so it's less and less of an issue in the world. No, that's a good one. I mean, you know, we have a long way to go. But we're making some progress. And if people think we haven't made progress, go watch an old sitcom or an old talk show. It'll blow your hair back. Like, it oh doesn't even have to be that old <laughs> to blow your mind. No, it doesn't. <laughs> but you'd be surprised. Because <laughs> stuff I grew up watching, now I'll watch it and be like, oh, my God, I can't believe they said that. You know, it is so offensive or it is so mean-spirited. It is so rotten. But you're right. You don't have to go back that far. Yeah. I am a, which is quite unique, I guess, in today's world, but I'm a huge optimist. I think the world will be amazing. So I agree with you. I think we're making progress and it's going to get better. And the next generation will be born into a nicer world. I'm hopeful for the future. And that's the way people should be. Don't be so negative. You have a negative uh, outlook things won't get better but if you try to remain positive and i think you're right the next generation is going to be very different in terms of making change more inclusion that's something they're going to be very used to that's something they're going to expect that's the kind of friends that they have that's the kind of passion topics they have so yeah the future is going to look pretty bright with people like that who have grown up in a different environment and have a different outlook so back to your book it is coming out once again 1128 
through Caliber Press. Please, folks, go to your local comic shop and order that, pre-order that. Great stories, great framing story that brings all these together. Set aside some time and read it. It's emotional gut punch, a lot of these. Really good stuff. You'd be amazed what can be done with one page. And the pro story, don't skip it. I enjoyed it a lot. And if you like H.P. Lovecraft, please check it out. Lazlo, thanks so much for being on Creator Talks. Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful. Coming up next week, Ken Christensen, L.A.-based writer and producer. Ken is a member of the Writers Guild of America, the Producers Guild of America, the American Television of Arts and Sciences, the Animation Guild, and the Mystery Writers of America. What has Ken done? Well, for television, he has written for the Netflix TV series The Punisher and for the sci-fi series Happy. He's also written pilots for HBO FX, A&E Spike, and Pivot series. And he also did work on the film Superman Returns. His published comic book work includes, through Image, Todd, The Ugliest Kid on Earth, Indestructible, through IDW Publishing, and also a contribution to The Amazing Adventures of the Escapist, through Dark Horse Comics. Ken will join me to talk about his work, how he got there, and his latest comic book, Oblivion, being published through Scout Comics. Don't miss that or a single installment of the podcast. It's available every Thursday through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Amazon devices, and on YouTube. You can follow me on Twitter. That's where I post most of my messages. And on Facebook, both at Creator Talk Pod. That's at Creator Talk Pod. And on Instagram, at Creator Talk Pod, where I will post my Saturday Silver Age and Sunday Bronze Age from my collection. If I can tie it into the podcast or give some little anecdote about where I bought the book, when I bought the book, what it meant to me, or what's inside the book, I will do that. What's your favorite comic book? Which one means a lot to you? Please share that on Twitter with me. And don't forget, you can go to my website, creatortalks.com. That's creatortalks.com. There, I have posted my podcasts which you can stream or download through Podbean. And occasionally, I will post a recommended reading, but I have really put more focus into the podcast. That is the number one priority, is bringing you the best creators in comics and books and art to talk about their craft, how they got there, what they do, and learn a little more about them as individuals. If you like what you hear, please rate and review on iTunes. Even leaving just a star rating, it helps the show a great deal. Get recognized among the thousands of podcasts out there. Subscribe and tell a friend it's free. For Creator Talks, this has been your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time. <laughs> Earthling Bowie does not get enough love. No. And it always will baffle me. It's a really solid recording, too. I mean, the sound quality of it for a 1995 CD sounds great. I've compared it to the other ones. I'm like, wow, this even sounds quality wise, recording wise, the care they put into that. There's no need for a remaster. You know, it sounds good. Really good. Yes. I always say I was a. 14-year-old Nine Inch Nails fan when Earthling came out. And the last thing I had on my mind was to listen to some oldie crap from the 70s. Like I, the name David Bowie had no appeal to me. And I have this specific memory of listening to Earthling from beginning to end in one sitting. It's a short album, like it's 40, 45 minutes. I went from somebody who doesn't care to being a lifelong fan. It was so good. And you know, it just occurred to me, we talked about Bowie's Outside. 
it has a framing story around all of its songs, just like your book. I should have brought that up. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Let's go back. <laughs> I'll, work that, I'll work that in. I wasn't into his music as a kid. And then at a certain point, I guess it was around high school, I got into it. And then I just like went like just all in, like totally all in. And I think one of the things that happened was I went over to my uncle's house and he's like, you know, can you take care of the dog for me? We're going on vacation. Can you just kind of stop by and let the dog out? I'm like, sure. He says, and if you want to listen to some music, go right ahead. You know, I have some albums there. And he had like a really nice turntable and everything. This is like early 80s. So CDs weren't out yet. And he had Ziggy Stardust on vinyl, like the original pressing Dynaflex, the whole bit, you know. So I was like, what is this? And I put it on. I was like, wow, <laughs> this is great. You know, so that's when I first started. Besides the uh, Serious Moonlight album, I started to check some of that older stuff out that he had. He still has these things. He's got like Magical Mystery Tour by the Beatles, like the original pressing. It's nice. Just, yeah. It's, don't scratch it when you oh. play it. You know, like, <laughs> Probably my favorite. Gosh, I'm, I don't know if you've had a chance to hear it. They put out a box set of Bowie's work of his uh, Berlin years and they remastered and remixed Lodger based on oh. Bowie's notes before he passed away. This is how he wanted it to sound. Have you heard that? No, I have to seek that out. I mean, I love the album, but I've never heard the master. Oh man. Now it's, you know, the box set's expensive and I'm like, well, I, I can't, you know, I can't shell it out. But on iTunes, you can get just the remastered Lodger album. And Tony Visconti, his producer, remastered it. And this was based on what Bowie said. You know, when he was in Sweden recording this, he said that he had to kind of rush it through and wasn't happy with the sound. It was all really compressed and flat. This opens up the sound stage, and you'll hear a few other, like you'll hear like a different solo at the end for Boys Keep Swinging. Man, the sound. If they had an award for best remaster, that album should get it. It sounds amazing. So if you have a chance to check it out, since you're a big fan, you won't be disappointed. I played that to death. And it's weird what you said, like how the studio recording, he wasn't quite happy with it because they it was a follow-up to Heroes, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. And Heroes have this like groundbreaking way they recorded the sound with the, I don't know if you heard them talk about the voice recording for the song Heroes, how they did it, how... The yeah, three different. Yes. Yeah, the three different microphones set up, and they each turned on yeah. the louder he sang, and the it just gives me chills just to hear about how brilliant. they engineered it. It's brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah, it is brilliant. He's, he's shouting towards the end, but the microphone is the third mic further out, so it has you can hear all the ambient sound in the room. It just sounds it's, it's fantastic. It's just brilliant how they did that. You think about that, right? I mean, how high tech is that? Nothing really. It's just three mics, and you just switch them off and go down the sequence. And I'm like, that is amazing. It's just caring about it, and I think that ties into the Nine Inch Nails. I always loved the idea of, he's not doing it anymore, which is not a bad thing, but in the Nine, it's just Trent Trezner locking himself into the studio for five years to just nerd out on all the sounds, you know? Like, I just loved all the care that goes. I can still listen to The Fragile and hear things I've never heard before. Oh, that's the best. Yeah, the, the really good music you can just listen to and always pick a little something out. Well, I'm glad we had a chance to talk about that. That's always a lot of fun. You'd posted something like pictures that described you on your Twitter, and I saw Bowie, and I was like, I wonder if he's a Bowie fan. <laughs> Huge fan. I 
I'm still bummed that he passed away. I know. I was in, so... I'm in shock. I'm still in shock. I woke up one day, something like two days after his birthday, and his album just came out, the last one. And I saw on Facebook, Rip David Bowie, and I was like, what? Is that a joke? What the heck? Because no one knew. It wasn't public knowledge. Can I tell you a story about that? Yeah. I knew a couple of days before he passed away. I'm not making this up. So first of all, I'm, I'm very lucky I bought Black Star the day it came out. So I had like four days listening to it before it became his farewell letter. But you know that really haunting music video for Lazarus? Mm-hmm. Or Lazarus. My wife at the time was an ICU nurse ah. for a couple of years. The video started and my wife paused the video. She said, this man is dying. Wow. It's a skill you cannot teach in school. It's just going into rooms and just looking at patients. And you just, after a while, you can just see that invisible sign of somebody not going to make it. Yeah. The second Bobby showed up in that music video, she freaking knew it. Mm. Yeah. I heard the album. I got it early. You know, I listened to it and a few days before he passed away. And then once he passed away and I knew what it was about, it sounded totally different to me at that point. <laughs> you know, it's harder to listen awesome. to. It was just heart-wrenching. Yeah. yeah. God, yeah. He made quite an impact and left quite a body of work. And I think people are going to be listening to it for decades to come. I mean, some of the stuff just sounds as fresh as can be. You know, it's going to stand the test of time. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. 